Hello, this is attorney Vincent Davis, and you're on with Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show this evening. Our goal here this evening is to answer questions and previous uh, clients or previous litigants in the family law court in the state of California. Tonight, we're going to be discussing a few things. Um, we're going to have our regular special uh, guest, uh, Attorney Raj Makani, who works with me, and also Attorney Slavea Ankova, who also works with me. Uh, they are both experienced attorneys and experts in family law. Um, last week after the show, I, I got a few emails of people asking questions about what services we offer. So I want to start out tonight by telling you what services we indeed offer at my law firm. Um, the first type of service that we offer is full representation of a party or a litigant in the family law court. That's where we take, take care of everything from suit to nuts. We uh, prepare all the paperwork, we attend all the hearings, we do all the discovery, uh, we deal with the opposing attorney or opposing party if that party is self-represented. Um, we also do what is called in the law limited scope representation. Limited scope representation is also known in the vernacular as bundled services. That's where you hire us to take care of a very narrow portion of your family law case. So instead of paying us a large retainer and us billing you per hour, in limited scope representation, we charge you a flat fee to do something. And that flat fee can be, uh, for example, um, someone just contacted me this week and all they wanted me petition, which is called the petition for dissolution. It's the beginning paperwork in the case, and that's all they wanted me to do. And they wanted, of course, to have me uh, have it served on the opposing party. Uh, in that particular situation, we charged this person just a flat rate to represent her uh, in this matter. The third type of um, services we provide to folks is, uh, and it usually happens during the middle of the case, um, we provide what's called a strategic case analysis. Sometimes it's also known as a second opinion for people who are represented. But clients come in and they bring in their file, copies of their file, and all of their minute orders. And I review it and uh, I make recommendations on what they should do, what they should share with their current attorney, and um, we also provide uh, memos uh, to the client so that all of these things are in writing so that um, the client can review them afterwards um, as you know time goes on. Uh, right now, I'm going to take a call from uh, one of our callers, and their area code is 714, ending in 98. Hello, you're on with Attorney Vincent Davis. Hey, Vince, it's Raj. Hey, Raj, how are you? I didn't recognize your number. Um, <laughs> I, it's, is, okay. it's okay. This is Attorney Raj Matani, and Raj works with me. Raj, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh, professionally and your background? Sure. Um, it's great to be back on the show. Um, my name is Raj Matani. Um, I'm an attorney with uh, Vince Davis's office. I've been in a, a family law attorney since um, 2013. Uh, prior to joining Vince, I had a solo practice uh, based out of Orange County uh, that did predominantly family law um, and a little bit of civil litigation and, and a few other things. Um, now that I'm with Vince, I focus almost exclusively on family law um, and a little bit of juvenile dependency work. Um, you know, my, my work with Vince's firm uh, runs the entire expanse of, of potential family law issues from uh, simple, uh, unbundled child custody cases to um, high net worth individuals. And um, it's given me a great experience base and um, 
in a short amount of time that I've been an attorney, there, there's a, there's already a lot that I've seen, and there's not too much that surprised me uh, to date. So I'm ready to work if people want to come through, and um, I'm happy to, to help them in any way I can. Great. What do you plan on talking to us uh, about later on in the show? Yeah, so, um, you know, last week we kind of uh, explored the the emotional realm of domestic violence issues. Um, I'm going to sort of boil that down to what, what I'm going to call my top five tips for responding to uh, a domestic violence restraining order. And then, uh, you know, time permitting, um, we're going to get into um, my top five tips for getting ready for a petition for divorce or when acting in a divorce case. So uh, I look forward to sharing that with our audience. Very good, very good. Last week we talked about what you should do if you wanted to bring a domestic violence case against someone. And so this week you're going to be talking about how to defend a case if someone brings a domestic violence case against you. Is that correct? That That is correct. Okay, very good. You know, right now I'm going to bring on our other special guest, Attorney uh, Slavea Ankolova. Hi, Slavea, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm here. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me again. Um, Tell our audience a little bit about your professional background. So I started my education up in Seattle. I attended the University of Washington and got my undergrad there. I then moved down to California to attend law school, um, attended law school in Orange County. I graduated and became an attorney in 2009. Um, Since then, I have uh, predominantly done family law, and for the last three years, I've exclusively been Um, just working on family law cases. Um, And and that's basically it in a nutshell. Okay. Do me a favor. You know, um, we have a client who was uh, texting me today, and uh, she was in court with you today. What type of hearing was that you were attending today? Today's hearing um, was focused on financial issues, specifically child support. Um, attorney fees, and reimbursement of minor counsel fees. I see. Tell me, so what, we, what, what, are, what are the factors the court looks at when considering um, if one party should pay the other party's attorney's fees? There are a few statutes in California, uh, specifically in family law, that address whether a court should award attorney fees. One of them is Family Code Section 2030, and it looks at basically the parties' respective incomes. Um, It looks at the um, burden on each party if they are um, ordered to pay attorney fees to the other, and then the burden on the party that's requesting the fees if they are not awarded the fees as well. Um, the court will also take a look at the assets um, and the debts of the parties. Uh, most important, though, is what the income of each party is. If there's a huge disparity in the income of the parties, uh, chances are that the higher-earning party will end up contributing at least some amount to the lower-earning um, party's fees. There are additional statutes that are important. For example, Family Code Section 271 can award attorney fees to a party um, which has had to deal with basically egregious conduct by the other side, which has precluded the parties from um, reaching settlement or finalizing the matter in an expedient manner. If the court finds that one party has acted unreasonably and has acted in a way that has uh, not promoted settlement of the issue and has unreasonably increased the cost of litigation, the court is likely to award attorney fees to the other side. And it can also, uh, Family Code Section 271 can also function as a block to, so to say, to Family Code Section 2030 and prevent the party that would otherwise be entitled to attorney fees from getting any. 
I see. That was a mouthful. There's a lot of things to consider for the court to order for the court to order attorney's fees against another party. Um, Correct. In today's in today's hearing, what happened? What did the judge decide with respect to um, our client paying attorney's fees to the father and the father paying attorney's fees to our client? Um, today's hearing was a close call. Um, we had extensive argument back and forth with the opposing counsel. Um, the reason being that um, our client is a high earner, um, having significant income. Uh, on the other side, we have a father who um, had a, a stroke um, a few years ago and allegedly has not recovered from the stroke and had no reportable income, very insignificant reportable income, um, less than $2,000, maybe about $1,500 a month. Um, in, in such a situation, normally the higher earning uh, parents, uh, which in our case was our clients, uh, would end up paying attorney fees um, and a significant amount of attorney fees. Um, however, in our case, we had a factual uh, background to the case where it was basically the, the father's conduct that had caused this case to come before the court to begin with. It was the father's conduct and inappropriate physical discipline of the minor child that brought the parties to litigation again. So because of Section uh, 271 that I just mentioned of the Family Code, we were able to argue that the father should not be entitled to attorney fees, um, and the court um, went with our argument. So attorney fees were not awarded to either party. And in the case of well, our client, attorney fees were not awarded because the court found that there's no place for attorney fees to come from as far as the father is concerned. He just had no income to pay with. Right. I mean, you must have, did a, you must have done a good job arguing that case because I'm facts of that case, and the incomes between the two parties or such there's such a disparity. Our client makes a lot of money annually, and I actually thought, although I didn't tell you this, I actually thought the judge may order our client to uh, pay a few thousand dollars, perhaps maybe five thousand dollars, to the other side for attorney's fees. Luckily, you were able to persuade the judge not to do that. So, very good job. Thank no, you. I'm going to take uh, a call. Like I said, oh, sorry, go on. No, go ahead. I interrupted you. I, I was just going to say that it was a very close call, and I think the judge was um, wobbling <laughs> between what to do. But um, I fervently believe in our client's case, so my, my arguments were fairly passionate. <laughs> so I believe that that helped in the court in making it. Oh, very good. I believe was ultimately the right one. Good. I'm going to take a call right now from someone. So we're getting a little backed up. Uh, their area code is 818-113. Hello, you're on Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio. Hi. What's your first name? Thank you for having me on the show. Uh, my name is Rosalie. And I am Rosalie, did you because I... Uh, yes. Hello. Yes, I'm listening. Yes, I'm calling because I've been married since 2003, but I've been separated since 2009. Um, through the marriage, I acquired two children, and the children are currently not in my custody. My children are in the dependency court system. And I wanted to know if now is a good time to proceed with the divorce paperwork. Because when I went to the courthouse over in Pasadena to apply for a divorce, I noticed that they asked me if I had children or if I did not have children. So I'm a little confused as to which forms I'm supposed to fill out since the children do not, I don't currently have custody over them. Okay. So, so are the children currently Okay, are the children currently in your custody? No. Okay. So 
technically you can start a divorce case right now. However, you cannot bring custody and visitation into your divorce case at this time because the Juvenile Dependency Court, pursuant to the Welfare and Institutions Code, has exclusive jurisdiction over your children right now. So you can't you can't um, bring that before the family law court. However, um, if you do file for divorce now, the other issues with respect to divorces in California still can be decided. And those issues are things like uh, child, excuse me, or like um, the division of assets the division of certain debts, uh, the use of certain property, um, domestic violence orders, although now um, domestic violence issues between parents who have a juvenile dependency case is now handled mainly in the juvenile dependency court. But division of like retirement accounts, division of pension plans, um, you know, the payment of the mortgage on the house, all of those issues can still be brought before the family law court in Pasadena. Now, your question was, would it be a good idea to file for a divorce now while you have this juvenile dependency case going on? And the answer to that yeah. is a very complex. It's a very complex answer. I can't tell you yes or no. I would actually have to sit down with you, interview you for about an hour or so and get some more facts to give you some legal advice on what would be be, be best for you in this situation. In regards to the debt, in the past I had a difficult time um, collecting child support because of immigration issues. He does not have any reportable income. So Well, at this present time, since the children aren't in your custody, you couldn't ask for child support anyway. Yeah. Right. Um, but in, but in the future, but in the future, um, you would want to sit down with an attorney and explore the issues of uh, the father's, uh, you know, income, money made under the table, his lifestyle, things things of that nature. Okay. All right. Okay. I wanted to ask you how did you how did you hear about our talk radio show? I received an email today. Oh, very good, very good. Well, in the future, we're going to be on every Wednesday night uh, at seven to eight p.m. And so, if you or family or friends, you know, have any questions for us about family law matters, please give us a call. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Raj. Yes, I'm still here, Vince. Tell us about domestic violence if somebody files a case against you. So, um, you know, on last week's show, I kind of got into a little bit of the nitty-gritty with what forms you might want to use. I thought, you know, this week, um, I sort of take a little bit of a step-back approach and boil down... um, Responding to DV in sort of like five uh, easy takeaway steps that anybody can use and, um, you know, it can help guide them sort of uh, high level through the process. So um, these are, I mean, these are five steps in no particular order, but uh, I think I'll start from the top if that's okay with you and, and go down from there. That's fine. Okay, great. So um, uh, the first, my first recommendation uh, to any to a party responding to DV is uh, show up. And I, I wrote on my notes here with two large exclamation marks, show up. Um, it's critical to show up at the proceedings. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've been in court either filing the DV or waiting on another case um, because in, in our court, DVs um, automatically get priority. The judges will listen to those cases first. Um, and so I can't tell you how many times in those proceedings, people get restraining orders simply because another party doesn't show up. And uh, why that's significant is, you know, your opportunity to represent yourself or tell your side of the story is taken away. You don't you don't get a chance to explain explain the facts or create uh, nuance to 
the things the opposing party is saying, and um, uh, you know the judge is only listening to to one side. Um, the first thing is to make sure that you show up, and that includes the ex parte portion of it and the notice hearing on the long term term restraining order. So, number one thing, show up. Uh, the second piece of advice that I have is get an attorney. Um, and this is not mostly self-serving for, for the purposes of our show. Um, I, I highly recommend it, whether it's us or somebody else, that um, people involved in this process um, get an attorney. And that's mostly because the consequences of a restraining order are significant. Um, you know, if you get a restraining order, this goes into a into a system in which um, police, background checks, many other things, and many other avenues can discover um, sort of this negative item against you. Um, and having that negative item against you can have an impact on your job, can have an impact on your, uh, you know, desire for certain licenses, things of that nature. And then it also affects um, your family. Um, there can be custody orders. There can be um, restraints on, on interaction with certain family members. So it becomes it becomes significant, and then the other additional part to that is uh, restraining orders um, can come in. You know, they create two avenues, two lanes in which they can be um, litigated. They can be litigated in the family context, and they can be litigated in the criminal context. Um, so if you know, if in the course of the events of uh, of the alleged DV, um, if the police were called or if the police are have filed charges. Um, proceeding in the family context can have um, significant impact on your criminal case and vice versa. So it's very uh, very much encouraged that a person get an attorney um, to help them navigate through this process. Um, the third piece of advice that I have is, uh, of course, prepare your response. So if people remember last week, um, sort of the way the process goes is that one party makes a filing for DV, either on an ex parte basis or on a notice basis. Um, they file the DV, you're given a temporary restraining order, and then you have to come back for a full, full-fledged full hearing on whether the, the temporary restraining order would become permanent. Um, that hearing is typically held about 20 days after the, the initial initial proceeding, and you have those 20 days to, to sort of get your ducks in a row if you're responding to, to DV. So um, the responsive paperwork that you need is called a DV-120. It's available online. You can search it. Um, just put it into Google DV-120. It'll create a um, PDF form that you can fill. And um, if you need additional space for your responses, there's attachments that you can use to further explain your case. You want to take a lot of time to read what the opposing party is saying and then craft your response um, to note each of the events that they've cited. And what you want to say in your response is you want to um, explain or minimize in as a factual way as possible as, as your version of events. Um, because if all that's provided is one side of the story, then the judge has no context within which to interpret how the evening's event, events went. So you want to put that together. Also, you want to talk to witnesses um, or see if they'd be available for a hearing. Uh, you want to, uh, if the police were called, make sure you get any reports um, and those kinds of things. So that's the that's the big the big critical step. And you want to make sure that you file this response well in advance of your hearing. I would encourage at least five days before your hearing. Um, the reason for that is is you want to give the judge enough time to read your response, uh, formulate his his or her understanding of of the case, and then when you come for the hearing. The way they typically work is a judge sort of um, takes charge of the process and asks the parties questions that would lead them to make a decision on as to where, whether a DV is appropriate or not. So you want to make sure that you have all of your things together, all of your evidence, all of your responses, everything filed and ready to go and pre presented to the courts um, at least five days before the hearing. Um, my fourth recommendation is... Uh, preparing for the hearing, and I'm specifically talking about the day of. Um, you want to make sure you get there early. Um, make, if you haven't been to that courtroom before, if you didn't show up at the ex parte proceeding, 
this may or may not be your first time in a in a courtroom, which can be overwhelming for people. Um, you want to make sure you get there early, find parking, um, get to the courthouse on time, and find and find your courtroom within the building. Uh, when you get there, make sure you tell tell the bailiff why you are there, um, that you're there on a DV proceeding, that they check you in, and that they see. Um, and then they're going. Each courtroom is a little bit different. They might have specific rules on where parties can sit, or um, you know whether you're called in first or not. So um, make sure you follow those procedures. Um, even if they don't have a specific process, I would encourage um, people responding to the DV to just be as calm as possible. So sit away from the other party, even if everything that you believe in their petition is completely wrong. Um, you want to limit the opportunities for negative events to occur, um, you know, in the presence of the courtroom. So sit on the other side of the courtroom, sit apart, don't talk to them, um, kind of just wait for your opportunity to address the court. And I'm going to be getting into that in my in my fifth step, but, um, you know, the day of the hearing, make sure you're dressed nice, um, have all of your papers, have everything ready to go, have a copy for yourself. If you have evidence or anything you're going to present, be presenting to the court, uh, make sure you have copies um, so that you can exchange it at the at the time of the hearing. And uh, my last recommendation, my fifth recommendation, is hearing decorum. Um, DV is an emotional process, and both sides are sort of at this high emotional point where they really want to get their story out. They want to tell everything that happened. They they want um, they want the judge to, to hear their side of the story, um, which is understandable, but you know, there's sort of a good way and a bad way to go about it. And um, sometimes decisions on DV are based on whether the judge uh, agrees with your manner of presentation, your style of presentation. So when you're there, take your time, pause, think about what you're saying. Only speak when the judge directs you to speak. Um, if the other side is spouting off lies and everything they're saying is incorrect, don't jump in and say, Your Honor, this is wrong, this is wrong. I want to, I want to tell my side the judge is 100% always going to give you an opportunity to address them. So take some notes with you, uh, write down the points that you want to address, and, be, and then hit them one by one individually um, during, during your opportunity to address the court. Um, while you're there, make sure you focus on the facts. Um, so in, instead of going into accusations about the other person, specifically address the factors that they're highlighting. The person who's bringing the DV is trying to show the court that they were scared, um, in, intimidated, they were harassed in some kind of way. Um, what you're wanting to communicate to the court as a person responding to DV is specific evidence as to whether those things happened or uh, demonstrating to the court that, you know, your actions didn't cause any kind of uh, unsettling feelings or harassment or intimidation or reasoning why you should be kept away from that person. So um, if you're able to present your your side in a coherent fashion, then uh, you have a much greater chance of, of potentially winning your case. So those are my five steps, just to go over them real, one by one real quickly. Make sure you show up to the hearing. Strongly advise to get an attorney. Prepare your response. Uh, get prepared for the hearing. And present yourself accordingly and in a coherent manner at the time of the hearing. And uh, if you do, do those five things, um, you can greatly um, potentially increase your chances of, of avoiding a permanent restraining order on your record. Well, those are great tips, great tips. I want to ask you a question. Could you please sure. tell, our listeners, tell our listeners what the California Code of Evidence is and how it applies to domestic violence cases? Sure. Um, the California Code of Code of Evidence um, dictates specific methods into how evidence is introduced in a in a court of law. Um, where that applies to DV is in uh, you know presenting the evidence that relates to the to the allegation. So, uh, for instance, you might have pictures or text messages or police reports. Um, Specifically relating to, to digital evidence in this age, you know, voicemails, those kinds of things. If you have a text message, you need to print it out. You need to bring it with you to court. It needs to be legible to show 
um, you know, where it was taken, when it was taken, and what was said. And then there are specific processes by which you can have that admitted. Um, in my experience, if you're too pro-per litigants or even, even with attorneys, um, some judges are a little relaxed on laying proper foundation and admitting that evidence. But um, And they usually allow most things in because they want, they want to find all the facts that they can. But, um, you know, when you're preparing your case, like I, like I stated in my tips, you want to make sure you have all of these things with you so that you can show the court that you're not just making statements to prove your point, that you have hard, objective evidence to also substantiate your argument. Okay. You know, it reminds me of a story where I was uh, doing a domestic violence case, and I was representing the um, person seeking the domestic violence uh, restraining order, and uh, my client had um, uh, videotaped evidence of, you know, the incidents of domestic violence. And um, I, at that time, it was a very long time ago, I was a younger attorney, didn't know of the court rule that requires when you show video evidence and it has sound to it, you had to have have it transcribed or it was not admissible. And I mm-hmm. showed up to court. I showed up to court without having the video transcribed. The opposing attorney, who was an old, sophisticated, you know, uh, hardened lawyer, uh, made an objection to my videotape uh, as being, um, you know, inadmissible because the uh, videotape was not transcribed. So after a long argument back and forth, the judge finally agreed with him. But he said, you know, Mr. Davis, I don't think you have to worry because the significance of the videotape is the other guy beating your client. And we don't need sound or you know translation of what they're saying to each other. I can see what's happening on the videotape. So my videotape was admitted without sound and we were able to use it. But because of the technical rules of evidence, that this other attorney knew about and insisted on trying to enforce, the sound from my book wasn't admissible. So knowing these um, these rules of evidence can uh, can turn your case and uh, turn a winner into a loser or a loser into a winner. Would, wouldn't you agree? I, I would 100% agree. And um, the place where I'm finding this to pop up most often is with voicemail. So that same requirement exists that the voicemails need to be transcribed. So um, I had a case recently where there were um, about 30, 30 voicemails exchanged. And this it was a convoluted case in which there was a DV plus plus a divorce going on. But um, a lot of the other side's evidence relied on, on these voicemail messages. And uh, the, same, the same thing happened. They didn't have them transcribed beforehand. Um, and they were excluded. Uh, the voicemails were excluded for that specific reason because they weren't transcribed and they weren't admissible to the court. The, the judge will not listen, will not allow you to take out your phone in the courtroom and show him a text message on your phone or play the voicemail in open court. It just won't happen. You know that a lot of attorneys don't know that rule. And I, I recently showed up at a trial. It wasn't a DV domestic violence trial. It was another type of trial. And I had video evidence. And as I was handing it out, the judge says to me, uh, Mr. Davis, I hope you have this DVD transcribed. And I did have it transcribed. My client mm-hmm. transcribed his own DVD. And she kind of looked at me and smiled as if to say, oh, you know what you're doing. <laughs> and luckily yeah. I had everything transcribed. Yeah. Slave, are yeah. you still with us? I am. Good. I have a question to ask you. Um, okay. In our email, in our email that we sent out, in our email blast, we sent out to all the respective listeners for today's show. We told them that we were going to be talking about a specific topic, and I want to get to that topic. The topic was who pays the bills during the divorce, and I've gotten that That's question okay. many times, many times. So could you explain who pays the bills during the divorce? 
Yeah, that's a good question, and it's a pretty broad question. Um, the court, of course, again, has a lot of factors um, that, that it looks at before ordering either of the parties to pay bills. Uh, when it comes to, for example, a mortgage on um, real estate or the family home, um, the court is most likely to order that whoever the party is that remains in the home has to also pay the mortgage. Um, always necessarily the case. Um, sometimes when the party that remains in the home is um, a party that actually has no income, and usually um, that would be the mom in the case, um, and she would stay in the home with the children. And she has been a stay-at-home mom throughout the marriage. The children are young. She has no income. In that kind of a situation, um, instead of uprooting the children from their home, the court is most likely to allow the mom and the kids to stay in the home and order the dad to continue paying the mortgage. Usually, though, the dad will be entitled to an offset um, for whatever amount he pays for the mortgage from whatever amount he is ordered to pay as child support and spousal support. So there can technically be double recovery. Um, usually the court will not order one party to pay child support and spousal support, and then on top of that, pay the mortgage bills, the household expenses, and that kind of thing. Um, in, in different situations, for example, when we're talking about vehicles, uh, the court will usually order that whoever the party is, is using that car is the party that has also um, the responsibility of paying the uh, vehicle loan payments. So as a rule of thumb, it's probably fair to say that whoever is the party that's going to be using the asset, if there is um, any sort of an obligation connected to that asset, the party using it will end up having to pay it. But of course, as I said, there's no black and white rulings in family court ever. So if, if uh, there's additional facts, for example, one of the parties isn't um, earning any income, the other party has a very significant monthly income, that party will probably, the party with the high income, will probably be ordered to pay um, the bills of the household and of the future ex-spouse. However, as I said, usually there will be an offset from spousal and child support. And if you need further specifics, please feel free to inquire. Okay. Um, I'm going to take another call right now. Area code um, 626, ending in 7-6. Oh, you're on Divorce and Family Law Talk radio show. Hi, Vince. My name is Mary. Hi, Mary. Can you, you hear have me? a question? I can hear you loud and yeah, clear. I, hear. I have a if question you're, if about. You're, um, Mary, if you're listening to your show, we can hear the rebound of the uh, show on our radio. I'm in another room, but if you can hang on a second, I'll turn off my computer. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> Okay, can you see better? I I can hear you and your dog. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Vince, I have a question about community property. Um, I, um, it's kind of a very complicated case, but if I have an inheritance, and I put that, while I was married, I put that money in Canada. And is that money at risk now that I'm separated and divorced? Okay, I wasn't really clear on your question. Could you repeat it? Okay, so I had an inheritance from my father. I had $250,000. 
and I was married. And my husband and I put that money in a bank account in Canada. But now I'm getting divorced. Is that money considered community property? Oh, that's a very good question. Slovea, what do you think about that? Well, from, from the fact that I've heard so far, um, it, it doesn't sound like that would be community property, even if it was inherited during the marriage. Generally, the exceptions to community property and to any assets uh, or financial or otherwise that were obtained during the marriage, um, the exception, the biggest exception probably, is inheritances. So in your case, uh, again, depending on all of the other facts surrounding it, uh, but it sounds like there's no issue with community property. It doesn't sound like an inheritance should be considered as community property. So chances are that the inheritance is safe from being divided between the two of you during a divorce. So there, I concur okay, with you. I concur with your analysis of that question. Raj, what do you think? Yeah, I 100% I agree with Swavea. Um I would actually be curious to hear from, from the caller um, what they did with the money. Is it still sitting in an account in Canada, or, or what happened? You know, I've had to use the money for living expenses and attorney's fees and um you know, just basic rent, and, and I had a forensic accountant that cost me $35,000, and each time, I put, so when I put the money in Canada, the dollar was strong, and now the dollar is weak. And so that money is not, when I take that money out of Canada and transfer it to the U.S., they not only charge me thousands of dollars in uh, service charges, but I've lost so much money because the dollar now is weaker. Yeah. So the money has almost gone. Um, you said your name was Mary, right? Right. Um, Mary, what stage are you in your divorce process? Are are you two still fighting over this asset, or or what happened? Where are you then? Well, um, actually, at this point in the process, my attorney is very concerned that somehow he'll come after that money. Now that I have it in the United States, that I've transferred the remainder of it into a bank account in the U.S., that somehow it becomes, uh, you know, it, it becomes where he can ask. For it. he can ask for it to be divided up, or if he can come and get it, or something. Yeah, uh, Mary. What I would what I would say to that, and maybe what you want to ask your attorney is um, is that you guys get all of your documents together um, to prove the source of this money and everywhere that it went that it never was commingled between the two of you. Um, so there's gonna if the, if the opposing party is gonna try and come, they're gonna have to show that some of it was subject to to the community, and you guys are gonna do what's called tracing and show that the money was inheritance, that all of it was inheritance, and that all of it was, uh, you know, was yours throughout the process. So, um, you know, you might want to advise your attorney or inquire with your attorney to make sure that you guys have all of those papers. Got it. Thank you very much. Thank you for calling, Mary. Raj, what did you just say? I was saying, did you have something to add to what I was saying? No, no. I, I think you gave her a very good analysis, Mary. Thank you very much for your call. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to take another call, area code 970, ending in 56. Hello? Um, hello, you're on hello? with Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. Who is this? This is David. How are you? I'm doing fine, David. How are you doing? Well, I wish I was better. I have a question for you. So my wife and I, well, current wife, we're getting a divorce right now, and she keeps coming at me and saying she's going to take all my 
all my money and this and that. And I, I really don't understand the process. And I just want to know what to do next, really. So, Have you guys filed for divorce yet? Not yet. She just, we're not living together right now. It's just kind of a messy situation. And she just, I work a lot. So she's bragging about how she's going to take all my money and everything. And I just want to know how I should act. And, Well, Bea, what do you think? What would you tell him? Well, so I, I would say that if um, if no divorce proceedings get started, um, I, I would caution you from doing anything that may look like you are trying to hide assets necessarily or trying to make it look like certain amounts are, are not community assets. Um When two parties are married, all of the income produced by either of the parties is considered community income. All of the assets purchased and acquired during the marriage are considered community assets as well, with certain exceptions, one of which we already just talked about. Mm -hmm. So in your situation, it's going to be a matter of tracing what assets and what money was actually acquired during the marriage. And okay. that amount would basically be equally uh, attributable to both of you, regardless of who was actually the party who earned it. Okay. So you, you may want to just get your documents in order and just start tracing all of the money and all of the assets, where they come from, where they go, what are they used for, in order to be able to protect yourself and present evidence later on when it becomes necessary. Oh, How long have you been I, married? Oh, so let's see. Five years. Well, six years. Okay, so, so it's a short-term marriage, um, in which case there's a good chance that you can still get records from your bank accounts um, and, and financial accounts of whatever sort they may be from the right. date of marriage. You probably want to do that um, and then get bank accounts from the date of separation to show kind of what kind of assets and money you had at the beginning of the marriage and then what the parties ended up with at the end of the marriage. That's going to be a good starting point for you to kind of have an idea of what is what you can argue is solely your separate property money and assets versus what was acquired during the marriage so that it would be community property. Okay. But the, well, that makes sense. No, that yeah. makes that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, Raj, do so you have anything that you'd like to add? Um, no, I I, I think Sylvia, uh pretty well encapsulated it. The the big thing, as always, when you're going through a divorce, is to to get all your papers in order. Um, to to the caller, I mean, are you guys still living together, or or what are you guys doing? Uh, no, we're we're not living together. I we've been we've been getting a divorce. We haven't got along for a while, so we're not living together now. But she just she just keeps bragging about how she's going to get money. I just want to make sure I do it the right way the first time. Yeah. So one of the specific things that I I would say you might want to sh- make sure you have documentation of, and which will be critical in your do- in your divorce, is documenting the date of separation. So if you have, um, you know affirmative evidence of you getting a different apartment or when a lease agreement started or a text message or something saying I'm moving out um, oh, okay. or, or something affirmatively showing your date of separation, that's going to be critical. Well, awesome. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great starting point. Thank you. Okay. Well, David, I hope that helped you. Thank you for calling in today. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Okay, before we um we're running out of time here, I wanted to cover a few more topics for our listeners, both from Raj and from Slovea. Um Raj, I you know, when a person files for divorce or is served with divorce papers, what do you think what do you think they should do first and foremost? Um, when you're when you're served with divorce papers, the first thing you should do is read them, uh, uh, which sounds um, obvious, but 
um, it's sort of critical to the process in understanding where you are. Um, you want to go over specific, very specific points, like I think I pointed out with the just last caller, is what are they stating as their date of marriage? What's the date of separation? What does the other, is the other party seeking in terms of child custody, support, all these other kinds of things? And then um, once you are served and read the papers, your clock is ticking. You have 30 days within which to respond to the divorce and file it with the court. So you kind of got to, you know, uh, get on your horse and go and either, um, you know, go to a, a clinic at your local courthouse and at least file your responsive papers um, or speak with an attorney or get, uh, you know, have a consultation with an attorney to figure out what your options are um, and whether or not you, you can you know, retain one or um, if you're going to go, uh, you know, the self-represented route. But um, the first two steps are read your papers, and then the second step is um, get all of your stuff together to get ready to respond. If you have you have 30 days within, with, within which to do that, otherwise um, you could be defaulted against and lose your ability to, to respond to the divorce. Very good. Slovea, Raj mentioned something, a term called date of separation. What does that mean? The date of separation um, in California is usually the date when the parties stopped living together as husband and wife, and they made it clear to each other um, and, and to the world that they are no longer going to be married or that they are going to be living separate. The court... Um, due to a case that recently came down um, in remarriage of Davis. Now, takes a look at when the parties actually stopped cohabiting as one of the most important factors in determining date of separation. And date of separation is very, very important in a divorce. It determines the date as of which the assets and debts of the parties will be, uh, will be divided as well as it, it has consequences as to the division of retirement accounts. So it's, it's something that needs to be considered expensively or, or in depth when coming up with the date of separation. But again, usually there shouldn't be an issue with that. However, sometimes the parties reconcile, they, uh, they don't immediately stop living together, they make some efforts to rekindle the marriage, so the date of separation could be a little wobbly and testimony may be necessary to determine what the date, or I'm sorry, the date of separation was. Um, but, but in either event, it's something that is extremely important. You know, you mentioned a new case that has come down from our, what was it, from our California Supreme Court. What was the name of that case again? It's the marriage of Davis. As in D-A-V-I-S, yes. Um, and it's, like, it's just from July of 2015, um, and it kind of changed the law a little bit. Prior to that case coming um, about, the court looked at various factors in determining the date of separation. And, and currently the court still would consider those factors, but the one that the court would most heavily weigh and that erases some of the gray area is basically when the parties stopped living under the same roof. So that's the new rule. That's the new rule, and that's the factor that the court, again, most heavily weighs when deciding what the date of separation is, if there is an argument, which, which is kind of a good thing, but it can also cause issues, especially in the case of parties that are truly and really separated, However, neither of them has the ability to move out due to financial reasons. Right. That reminds so me of another I... thing. Go ahead. That oh, reminds me of another It simplifies as well as complicates matters, depending on which side of the, of the tracks you're standing on. <laughs> You know, that reminds me of another famous California case about the date of separation. And it, it went something like this. A young medical student and a teacher or, yeah, teacher got married um, while he was a medical student. 
they get separated after a couple of years, I think either while he's becoming a doctor in residency or right after he becomes a doctor, and then they break up. He moves in with a hospital, I think, and then um, they go back and forth over years about getting together and not getting together, but he's living with the new girlfriend, and the wife is at home with the children. But apparently, I think the facts were that he came home every weekend, and he visited the children. He got his laundry done by his uh, wife, and, uh, you know, they ate dinner together and everything. And uh, years later, the nurse the doctor was living with uh, demanded that he get a divorce, so he finally filed for the divorce. But at the time of filing for divorce, he had become very wealthy and had a very large medical practice. And so the question became, you know, what was the date of separation? Because if the date of separation was when he first became a doctor or was a resident, he had virtually no assets. But if the date of separation was, you know, years later after he had a, had a thriving medical practice, which I believe was worth millions, um, you know, was the wife entitled to half of that? He, of course, argued that uh, they had broken up years and years before uh, he had, his medical practice became successful, and therefore the wife should be entitled to nothing from his medical practice. And the wife, of course, argued the exact opposite. And in a famous case in California, the California Supreme Court, uh, the court held that the date of separation was when the doctor filed for divorce. Because I, I guess his actions of coming home every weekend, and, and occasionally, admittedly, he, they were still having some type of relationship. And the wife said that they were always talking about whether they were going to get back together or not get back together. And uh, the date of separation made a huge difference in the divorce and the way the court ruled and the assets and how they were divided. I don't know. Do you, Raj, do you or Slavea remember that case? I was not. <laughs> I, I haven't heard of I don't remember that case, I should say. But it Fair does enough, sound it's an old like... Sorry, go on. No, it does sound like what? It does sound like the exact type of issue that this new case that came down, In Ray Marriage of Davis, was trying to fix. Um, because prior to In Ray Marriage of Davis coming about, the court had to look at these uh, various factors, um, as you just mentioned, whether the parties were still working on the marriage, whether they were still spending time together, whether they were still having uh, marital relations, so to say. And now when we have this more clear line of the court looking at when the parties stopped living together, that kind of makes it a little less complicated in figuring it out. Yes, yeah. You know, we're about running out of time. And I want to thank uh, Slovea and Raj for joining us again this week. Video again next week, Wednesday evening, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, this show is also going to be replayed during the week, and I believe that if you go to the website talkradioexperts.com, you can also play on demand and see the transcript of the past show. I want to remind our um, our listeners that we do offer representation for parties who are getting divorced or in the family law courts regarding custody, visitation, child support, spousal support, the division of assets, the division of debts. And we represent um, both sides of the fence, either the person filing for divorce, be it the husband or the wife, and the person who's um, on the other side of the divorce, be it the husband or wife. We offer full representation where we take care of everything. And we offer the limited scope representation where we just fill in and take and complete slices of the pie for the client. And we also do the strategic case analysis. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week, Wednesday at 7 p.m. for the Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.